0: Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. All right, everyone, good morning. Good morning. I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 4, and then we'll get started. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you through our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit. And entreat you to grace us with your presence today. To lead us and guide us as we meditate on and work through your word. That you, precious Lord, will not only allow the word to penetrate our natural ears but to penetrate also our spiritual understanding. That your word will be implanted deep within us to transform us and to illuminate us from within. That we may project and reflect that light in our individual and corporate walk. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. So Romans chapter one, verses one to four. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So last time we ended speaking about the Trinity, one God, three persons, and the God-man, Jesus Christ, that he is fully God and fully man in one person. And we emphasize the idea that Jesus was born in the kingly line or the line of King David. He was a biological descendant of King David to whom God made the, uh, the promise via the Davidic covenant that the Messiah would come through his bloodline. So Christ, beyond the shadow of a doubt, is a Judahite. So here now is my question. Which of Christ's parents were Judahites. We know Jesus is a Judahite. We know that. But the question now is, which of Christ's parents were Judahites? Joseph. Joseph. I hear Joseph. Does anyone have a different answer? There's only one answer left. And the answer is, both of them were. And this is why that's important. We go all the way back. King David. King David had many sons. He didn't have just Solomon, who was the king that followed him. He had another son by the name of Nathan. Mary was a biological descendant of Nathan, one of King David's sons. Joseph And when you look at all the genealogies in the New Testament, this is where all this validation comes from. Joseph was a direct descendant of Solomon. Now, as we all know, the Holy Spirit descended upon Mary, who was a virgin, and that is where baby Jesus was conceived. It was a supernatural conception. So Joseph did not play a part in conceiving baby jesus so jesus was joseph's legal son which now means because joseph was in the the legal line as a descendant of david jesus now has a legal right to the throne so biologically from mary jesus now has uh, is a biological judahite and now legally being the adoptive son of joseph he has a legal right to the throne of david and i say all of that to say whichever route you take it even in the eyes of men even if you were to use natural bloodlines or how rights to a throne progresses progress god is so smart God masterfully planned everything. He designed it in such a way that whether you look at it from the Joseph perspective or from the Mary perspective, Jesus was, is the rightful heir to the throne. And here's the other thing. Did Jesus have any children? No, No, which means there are no heirs. There are no successors which come after Christ. He is the son of David the rightful heir to David's throne, and when he comes back to earth at some point, he will sit on David's natural earthly throne. Now before I leave Romans chapter one, verse three alone, here's now a question that's gonna defend you when you begin engaging in apologetics or defending the Christian faith. Do the Jews believe the Messiah has come? No. no. Do the Jews believe their Messiah will be a son of David? Yes. Yes. So here now is my question. Not for you, but I'm going to ask a, 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 a Jewish person through the class here. Here now is my question. If the Jewish Messiah has not come... He's going to be coming at some point in the future. And that Jewish Messiah is going to be a biological descendant of David. How will they prove the Messiah is a descendant of David? What would you need to prove that?
1: DNA.
0: Well, you're right. You're right. you you that would actually be the best way of doing it if we could go back two thousand years get a sample and then compare but, but but now presuming that dna won't be available right in, in doing a historical comparison if someone were to say i am the jewish messiah i am a descendant of david how would that person prove they are a descendant of david by a genealogy By a bloodline, by a family tree. Because the way we know Jesus is a descendant of David is by what? By genealogies, by bloodlines. When you look at Matthew's gospel, for example, it basically traces the uh, family tree all the way from uh, David to Joseph. But guess what? Where were all the Jewish genealogical family records kept? In the temple. And what happened in 70 A.D.? It was destroyed. destroyed. Now we have a problem. Because if you believe the Messiah hasn't come yet, and you believe the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David, there's no historical way for that person to prove it. This is now a... So whenever now you're defending the Christian faith and engaging in a civil dialogue with someone of the Jewish faith, this would be a question to raise and to say, how would your presupposed Messiah prove and validate they really are a seed of David, which your scriptures say he must be? Good. So Romans chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that Jesus is a son of David. And if Jesus were a mere man, the text would stop after Romans 1, 3. But it then goes on. In 1, 3, it says Jesus was a descendant of David according to the flesh or according to his human nature. Because flesh refers to everything a child derived from their parents. They have a heart, they have lungs, they have thoughts, they have feelings, they have reason, they have logic. So whenever whenever we talk about a real human being, Jesus is a full human being. The Bible says time and time again, he ate, he slept, he got tired, he got hungry, he wept, he got uh, got weary. Jesus is a fully, full-fledged, no doubt about it, human being. But in order to get the full understanding of Jesus, he's not just Son of David according to the flesh, he's also the Son of God according to the Spirit. So what does verse 4 say? So we're still talking about the gospel. So the gospel is number one, verse three, concerning his son who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. But here now comes verse four. There's a contrast. But he was declared, he wasn't born, he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul begins telling us about the Gospel by telling us who Jesus is, and he tells us number one, Jesus is fully man, and now in verse number four, he tells us Jesus is fully God. The point is that we cannot get a full picture of Christ by only seeing the human perspective. So while he began, while Jesus began at some point to be a man, being born of the Son of David, he never began being God. What happened in history is that verse number four, he was declared the Son of God according to the Spirit. Another way of saying that is this. Christ was effectually proved to be the Son of God, or declared with emphasis based on the resurrection. Now, this word declared is important to understand because this point was brought up before. Whenever God reveals something to us, that revelation is for our benefit. It's for our understanding. So the declaration to humanity by the resurrection, that Jesus is the Son of God, God didn't do that to give himself clarity. God always knew Jesus is the Son of God, but the resurrection now was the declaration to us. So we would now have proof evidence beyond the shadow of a doubt of who Jesus really is. In other words, The resurrection did not make Christ the Son of God. Rather, it was a powerful declaration to us, to who Jesus really is. And Paul further interprets what he writes here in Romans the same way in Acts. Because in the book of Acts... In Acts chapter 17, when he's preaching on Mars Hill, when he's preaching to Gentiles, to Greeks, in the middle of Athens, what does he basically say? He basically says that God gave assurance, or God gave evidence to humanity, to the entire world, that Jesus is the Son of God by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is the assuring sign to the world at large. So Christ declares who he is in his public ministry. He's crucified on a cross. On the third day, he's raised from the dead. And that grand miracle, that uh, wondrous work of God, is now the sign and the seal that testifies to everything he said and did while he was alive. But verse number four says that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power. But that power is only comprehended, is only appropriated by particular people. Here's what I mean. The historical reality that Jesus on the third day rose from the dead is a historical fact. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses. But when some people hear the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead, their answer is, so what? What? Their answer is, doesn't really affect my life. Their answer is, I'm going to continue to live the life I choose to live, and I'm not going to pay attention to that fact. So when Paul writes that the resurrection of Christ was a declaration with power, that power, that force, that emphasis is only appropriated by particular people, and that force that power is only appropriated by particular people when what happens? The Holy Spirit opens our eyes and opens our hearts to see what God is revealing to us. The Bible talks about people who see but can't see. It talks about people who hear but can't hear. So two different people could, could, could literally, we're talking 2,000 years ago, two different people could literally look at the flesh and bones resurrected Christ and one person would fall down in awe and the other person would shrug their shoulders and go about their business. So the power with which Christ was raised from the dead is appropriated by individuals when the Holy Spirit writes that message, when the Holy Spirit writes the ability to respond to that miracle on our hearts by His divine hand. With power is also more than the fact that the, that the resurrection was a demonstration of power because God could have done any miracle with power to prove who he was. God could have done anything miraculous to prove who he was. God could have turned the sky purple He could have lifted up mountains in the air and made donkeys sing a song. He could have lifted up a whale from the sea, given it four legs, and had the whale preach a sermon. I'm being ridiculous on purpose to prove the point. God could have done anything to demonstrate his power. But in raising Christ from the dead, from raising his son from the dead, he was declaring with power that Christ is the Messiah, That Christ is the one in whom we have faith. That Christ and Christ alone is the Son of God. That he's not only our Savior, but our Lord. Because if we contract verse number four, who was declared the Son of God with power, what was he declared? Jesus Christ was declared our Lord. And the attesting seal to that was that he was raised from the dead with power. Now the power, the thrust, the force, the emphasis of the resurrection is an an important reality to embrace because if the resurrection didn't happen, there would be a lack of power, there would be a lack of emphasis. What do I mean by that? When Jesus came into the world, did he come in the world with power? came in the world as a baby, right? A defenseless, innocent, toothless baby who was as dependent on mommy and daddy as you and I were as children. Yes, he did many, public, uh, did many miracles during his public ministry, but Jesus was also rejected by lots of folks even his own brethren when Jesus was handed over through the Jews to the Romans if you were a fly on the wall it would seem as if Christ was saturated in powerlessness in that he was handed over to men he was handed over to soldiers and Jesus was then nailed to a cross and crucified so without resurrection without the resurrection now Christ's public ministry would have ended without power, without emphasis, without a dramatic declaration. But now after the resurrection, that is now a powerful proclamation to the entire world where now after the resurrection, who was Jesus declared? the Son of God who has all authority and all power on heaven and on earth, Matthew chapter 28. Now, after the resurrection, the world is now able to see Jesus for who he really is. And who he really is is Yahweh Elyon, is King of kings and Lord of lords. This is why in Matthew 28, Jesus sends his apostles out to the entire world because he is the Lord that has power over the entire world. So when Jesus, before Jesus incarnates, he leaves heaven as God. He then incarnates and becomes a man after now the resurrection, after he ascends and he returns to heaven he now returns as the God-man, fully God and fully man in one person forever. So declare the Son of God with emphasis. Good. So we've been talking about the resurrection repeatedly this morning, which now brings us to core doctrines of the Christian faith, number three and four. Last time we talked about core doctrines number one and two. Core Doctrine number one, Trinity, one God, three persons. Core Doctrine number two, the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, one person. Here now is Core Doctrine number three. Core Doctrine number three deals with Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And as a backup to what I'm about to say, I would refer everyone to either on the podcast or on the church website, to episode 6.05, episode 6.05. Whether you're you're on dlcfc.org or listening on your phone via podcast, if you go to the May 15th episode, 6.05, there I talk about the sin problem. And that's going to give you um, theological backup to what I'm going to say today. So core doctrine of the Christian faith, number three, is this. That Jesus Christ was crucified and died on a cross. Now, someone tell me. Why did Jesus die? To make us feel sorry for him? No. (laughs) To atone for our sins perfect what does atonement mean anyone to pay a moral debt that is owed in God's law God is a God who is holy sin is something radically contrary and offensive to God so in God's perfect holiness he hates he abhors he cannot tolerate sin So anything that is sinful, anything that commits a sin, must die. That is the rule. When sin comes face to face with the holy God, that sin must be judged. So the reason why Jesus was crucified, the reason why Jesus went to the cross, was to make an atonement, meaning he takes the sins that every one of his elect would commit from forever past to forever future. Jesus then carries that weight, that guilt, that burden of sin on his shoulders, and now he's our substitutionary sacrifice on the cross to make an atonement. Now that we know Jesus went to the cross to make an atonement, That is critically, radically important, and this doctrine is a foundational principle of the Christian faith because of any religion on planet Earth, there is only one that deals with the sin problem, and that faith is the Christian faith. There is only one means of atonement of any religious system on the planet, and that is the cross. Any other religious system, this is how it works. It's basically, do these things, get a few check marks on your religion card, and maybe when you die, you can hope you'll make it to heaven. That's how other faiths work. Only Christianity deals with the problem. What's the problem? Me. It's you. It's our warped, sinful nature where we want to sin. And because God dies for us as our substitutionary sacrifice, God is the one who deals with the sin problem. And because God deals, because a divine creator deals with the sin of a finite creature, that price is now eternally sufficient. So core doctrine number three is, Jesus dies on the cross to make an atonement But what happens three days later? Does Jesus stay dead? No. He resurrects. So here's core doctrine number four, which is intimately related to number three. That on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He resurrected. His resurrection was not a figurative example. It wasn't an allegory, it wasn't spiritualized. He had a real body, and on the third day, he really rose from the dead. Someone who spoke, someone who you could touch, his body rose from the dead. Now someone tell me, why does the resurrection matter? Let me try again, let me ask another way. What was Jesus raised from the dead for? Yes, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He was resurrected for the purpose, the reason for our justification, Romans 4.25. The simplest way to think about the resurrection is this, that Jesus was justified so that we can be justified. Jesus was justified so that we can be justified. And when I say justified, I mean being declared righteous, being declared okay with God. The simplest way to think about it is this. People who profess saving faith in Jesus Christ are now in him, right? So now he's crucified on the cross, makes an atonement. The sin problem is now dealt with. He goes into the tomb, and then on day number three, he's raised to new life and will do so forever. So now when we have faith in Jesus Christ, what happens to us? We now, in profession of faith, uh, daily crucify the flesh, put to death the sinful nature. Our old self dies, and then when we die and go to the grave, as a function of our faith, we are Raise in imperishable resurrection bodies that's what happens in the end but daily now in our everyday lives the fleshly carnal person dies as the spiritual person grows so think of it like this in christ the one who was justified so we could be justified we essentially now in him follow him going down to the grave and being raised to new life but even more than that If Jesus was not resurrected, the Bible is lying. Then our faith is in vain. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, now all we have is just an earthly example. Now all we have is a guy who did some miracles and told some nice stories, and then he died just like everyone else. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then following his example, everything that happens in and of this life ends in the grave because Jesus was raised from the dead now we have a real future now we have a real hope because the object of our hope is living and eternal now the one in whom we have faith is alive he's not dead he's living and breathing who is currently now as we speak mediating for us because Jesus was raised from the dead This now validates every claim he made during his public ministry. For if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, he wouldn't be our Savior. So that's core doctrine number three and number four. We're going to quickly finish Romans 1-4 next week but I'll stop right there before we dive into the rest and ask if there are any questions. Uh, where do you
1: find a reference in the New Testament that Mary's the descendant of Nathan?
0: Luke chapter three. So at the end of that genealogy, you have uh, uh, Mary's genealogy going all the way back to King David. So the beginning of Matthew's gospel Gives you Joseph's side, the end of Luke chapter 3 gives you Mary's side.
1: And I probably I misunderstood. Well, I was raised Roman Catholic, and um, I guess it probably some miscommunication, either my understanding or because I'm going back so many years. But they always proclaim Jesus.
0: What do you mean? You're 19 years old, right?
1: <laughs> well, <it's true>. <laughs> 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 um, was that? Uh, there was supposed to be the God Man. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Right. Um, but they were talking about his earthly life as well. That's why he was able to do so many miracles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: Right. I'm not sure I understand your question.
1: All right. No, I, I kind of got the impression that he was fully God, fully man after the resurrection. You know?
0: No. So, he was fully God, fully man at the moment of incarnation. So, as Romans 1, 3 says, he was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. So, in that fleshly incarnation, that's where the full humanity began. So, the simplest way to think about the incarnation is that God remaining what he was, God, became... What he was not a man, and is now fully God, fully man, and one person forever. But that full humanity was full at the moment of the incarnation. So Jesus' deity never changes, and his humanity progressed in the same way that our humanity progressed, where life began at the moment of conception. He developed as an embryo, he was born, and everything proceeded. as normal human beings do. Yeah. Did that? I'm not sure if that was your question, but that answer your your confusion. Okay. However. <laughs> yes.
1: There's another. Uh, all right, but. Um, isn't it so that the Son of God did depend on His power as God to walk with God on earth? He depended on the Father, That's right?
0: What happened in Luke chapter 3? Like so, okay. Let's take a step back. God doesn't need any additions to act like God, right? Okay. So... Without getting too technical in the in the two natures of Christ without separation and, and, and confusing everyone. Oh. The simplest way to think about it is this. In Luke chapter 3, what happens? After Christ's baptism, something happens to him.
1: The father declares my beloved son, my mother,
0: and then uh, key thing. Yeah. The Spirit yeah. descends, okay. right? What, who was the Spirit descending on? It wasn't descending on the God. It was descending on the fleshly human nature. Because what happens to you and I, right? We are totally and utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do anything in this life, right? He's the agent that animates our spiritual hearts to do anything. So, again, without trying to get too technical in the the dual natures of God and man, who are two natures in in one person, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit now is on the man Christ, which now enables him to do all of the wonders and miraculous things throughout his entire life. Because, again, the, the, the... God never needs to be added upon and the second member of the Trinity Jesus never needed any help to act like God it's the man Christ that received the full baptism of the spirit because you can't baptize God with God okay. <laughs> if you're confused we'll email throughout the week but that, it's actually a very good question And it took me probably a month of just thinking about it to actually get it. It's a very good question because it shows that you're thinking. But it's one of those things we have to try and uh, meditate on before we actually uh, get. Because in reality, we're trying to understand the essence or the nature of God, which is never going to be easy.
1: Form an example, of everything, of how to walk the Christian life. Yes. Like he, did, he said, I can do nothing without my father. Correct. Yes, we know that he and the father were one, and he did say it. Right. We have to now get there by surrendering everything about us. Right. In order to have that power that he has available to us, but we, limited because of our tendency to be human
0: correct because the bible says be imitators of god and what's the thing that jesus did consistently throughout his life he was always always praying praying. god doesn't need to pray Pray. but the man was not only praying to secure um divine strength that was also proving an example to us that the, um, a route by which we secure spiritual strength to be a spiritual person and therein do spiritual things is to engage in a spiritual exercise to a spiritual God. Yes? I kind of
1: understand what you're saying. Yes.
0: Because remember when he was in the garden praying, he was praying to his father. Correct. Correct. pastor said that means, I mean,
1: in a sense it means, if this is the wrong thing I'm doing, show me the right thing to do. But I come back to, he was praying to the Father, if this is not your will let it pass me. And he's a peace guard, so wouldn't he have known
0: what the will was and not have to ask the Father? The man what didn't. So again... When we say that God is fully God and fully man, that human nature, there, there wasn't a, a, a meshing or a blending. There really is a divine nature and a human nature, right? on the human nature side, it's just like any other human nature, where it's crippled by lack of omniscience, lack of not knowing not knowing things. So in the same way when you and I pray, when neither you or I know the complete will of, uh, of God, the same thing applies now to Christ's humanity. So the natural fleshly human side of him did not know the full counsel and will of God, which not only explains why he was praying then, but he was also praying throughout his entire life. Amen. Okay, let's pray. Divine Spirit, we thank you for the time we have spent sitting under your direction and, and word, and entreat you as we grapple and wrestle with these penetrating and seemingly incomprehensible spiritual truths that as we leave here today you write on our hearts the yearning and the desire to pursue you, to seek you, and that you will open our eyes as we go back on Romans, search your scriptures, and meditate on your word that we will never allow uncertainty or lack of clarity to inhibit us but rather we shall push through it in order to grab a hold of you, Lord Jesus, and have a deeper knowledge and therein a deeper intimacy with you, our precious Lord. Divine Spirit, lead us and guide us, for without your help, we are blind and lost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.